From the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Hi, this is Steve Mencher for the Library of Congress, and we're continuing our podcasts connected with the Music and the Brain lectures here at the library. I'm speaking with Ani Patel, who's the Esther J. Burnham Senior Fellow at the Neurosciences Institute in San Diego, California. And we're talking before his talk on the music of language and the language of music. And we'll certainly talk later about how this is meant to be taken both sort of literally and figuratively. Okay. Um, But first, tell me a little bit about yourself and your background and your interest in music. Are you someone who started in studying music as a kid? Did you take some kind of lessons? Yes, I took music lessons. I was lucky enough to go to school at a time when you could take music lessons as part of school. So I started in elementary school on the clarinet in group lessons and played in the band and then um, in high school in the, the high school orchestra. And then college picked up guitar and taught myself and then went on to study classical guitar in graduate school. So yeah, I've had a lifelong love of music as an amateur. Never studied it as for a degree. All my degrees are in biology. I'm a scientist and I came to music through a love of both biology and music and trying to find a way to put those things together. Great. Now, let's dive into one aspect of this right away because I, I'm interested in this. Do you think or have you learned or do you do your colleagues believe mm-hmm. that because you studied music uh, as a youngster, your brain is somehow different than people who didn't study music as, as youngsters? That's actually a hot topic in the study of music in the brain as to what extent does learning a musical instrument actually change the structural and functional properties of the brain. And I have colleagues that work exactly on that question. There's a lot of work being done in Boston by a colleague named Gottfried Schlaug, a neurologist and musician, um, who has been studying uh, kids. And his studies are particularly interesting because there's been this persistent question of, are people who are musical that way because they're born with something special, something different? And perhaps some are, but he's done some studies where he's actually started structural imaging, looking at the brain structures of children uh, when they set out to begin learning music, so very young, five or six or seven years old, and, uh, and tracks them while they learn music. And is showing that uh, kids who do and don't start music lessons, um, there are no real obvious differences in their brains to begin with. But as they learn instruments and as they progress, you begin to see structural differences in the brain. It's, this is what we call experience-dependent plasticity in the world of neuroscience. It's that the brain is an organ that changes with experience. The very structure of the brain changes with experience, and you can see that using modern imaging tools, and music is a wonderful uh, tool for studying that because it involves many hours of practice. It's very rewarding. People engage in it um, for a, a lot of time with a lot of emotional commitment. It, it's a very natural kind of experience that you can study in terms of its effect on the brain. That's fascinating, and we'll get probably more into that sort of thing as we continue talking. Sure. I love some of the other questions that you and your colleagues are investigating. And again, this may not be right down the center Mm -hmm. of what you're doing. But uh, one question I I saw that you were interested in was looking at how music might give us chills. How would we find out about that? Well, it it just empirically does. I mean, uh, so in an early study of of chills to different kinds of art, I think it was a paper by Goldstein, um, showed that music, more than any other kind of art uh, reported as evoking chills in listeners, more than visual art or movies or theater, although those also did too. And people uh, differ in the music that gives them chills. So in fact, that was the basis for a very creative study by a couple of colleagues in Montreal who did brain imaging of people listening to music that gave them chills. So they brought in their CDs of their own self-selected music, 
listened to it, got chills while they were having their brains imaged, and um, that was confirmed by various physiological measures that were being taken. And then they looked at the brains um, to see, and now even though everybody's music was different in terms of what gave them chills, the, some of the brain responses were similar. Some of these areas that we know as neuroscientists are associated with kind of reward, you know, uh, sending reward signals to the brain, typically for biologically important behaviors such as reproduction or food and so forth, were actually being activated by hearing purely instrumental music. This highly abstract stimulus was jolting the brain in a way that uh, was surprisingly powerful given that these centers are thought to be, you know, ancient evolutionary centers for biologically important kinds of behaviors. Huh, that's fascinating. I, I know I've done some uh, interviews with people who write music for the movies, say, mm -hmm. and they're mm -hmm. very, they know what notes to play and how to arrange them yes. on the page and, and yes. what instruments to yeah. use in order to yes. make those chills happen. Yeah, I, I think movie music is applied music cognition. I mean, this is really trying to get a particular response out of a listener. Uh -huh. Now, could you sort of help us to to figure out what is driving some of the research on, on music in the brain. It, it seems like mm. we're, we're recognizing an explosion in, in this. Yes. And uh, I wanted to ask you, as one of the premier researchers in this area, why are people looking at this? I think people are coming to music for a variety of reasons as neuroscientists. Some of them are interested in the emotions, and uh, music is a particularly powerful way to elicit emotions, um, particularly positive emotions. It's Quite practically, if you put somebody in an fMRI scanner and you're interested in studying... I'm sorry, what's an fMRI? Oh, I'm sorry, fMRI. Let me explain that. Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging. It's the, you know, MRIs, most people are familiar with those. That's a technique that gives you pictures of the structure of the brain. And if you tweak that technique, you can actually get pictures of um, activity in the brain, uh, regions of the brain that are more active as you hear things or, or do things. And there's been a fair amount of work on emotion in using that technique, but it's focused largely on fear, on negative emotions, and part of that is practical. I mean, how do you get somebody to feel really great when they have their head stuck in a giant metal tube and gigantic noises being pounded at their ears? You know, they're claustrophobic. They're, you know, it's not a pleasant experience. Um, and yet, if you use music that they like, you can actually have people have extremely positive emotional experiences lying in this highly artificial environment. So it just practically gives you a way to study interesting things about the brain that you might have difficulty getting in other respects. Aside from that, I think this issue that we just mentioned before, plasticity, how does the brain change with experience? We're recognizing that music is a wonderful tool for exploring that. In my own interests in the relationship between music and language, we're learning that music has enough similarities with language um, that you can actually use them together to get some deeper insights into the underlying mechanisms in both domains. So I think people are coming to music and uh, as neuroscientists for a variety of reasons, and um, What's neat is that they seem to be sort of gelling into this community of people that really are interested in this subject and who have these nice dialogues and conversations with each other and can promote each other's interests and work. That's fabulous. Now, do you all get together at conferences, or are there, uh, is there a group of you that, that meets regularly to, to discuss these kinds of things? Yes. Luckily, in the past few years, there have been a series of conferences uh, called the Neurosciences and Music, the first one was in New York City at the New York Academy of Sciences in 2000, and there have been three more um, sponsored by a, an Italian foundation called the Mariani Foundation, who's taken a real interest in this field, and it's really helped the field by bringing us together every year or two to discuss these issues, talk about our latest research, and stimulate each other's ideas. And let's zero in now on one of the particular areas of research that you're looking at, and that's music and language. Why did you get started on this area of investigation? Well. 
I was interested in how the brain processed music, but when I started studying this back in the mid-90s, we had much less information than we have today, the thing that's really exploded just in the past uh, decade. And so I thought, well, um, the biology of music is a little far out, but people think the biology of language is a reasonable subject. There's lots of work in that domain, and, and language and music have some obvious similarities. They're, they both use structured sound sequences. Um, they involve learning. They involve kind of processing of emotion and structure, and they have melodic and rhythmic aspects in common. So why not study some of the biology and neurobiology of language as a way to learn some concepts and techniques that I could apply to the study of music? But in the process of, of reading and learning and studying, I began to see more and more interesting connections between these domains, and I thought, well, hey, let's, um, this is an interesting subject in and of itself. Uh, just to what extent are music and language drawing on similar brain mechanisms versus separate brain mechanisms, and how can we use their comparison to learn about those mechanisms, what they are and how they work? That's great. Now, you'd have to assume, in, in a sense, in order to do this work, in order to be devoted to it, that music was as important to us as humans as language, or at least a, as central to our mm. experience. And not everybody would buy that argument offhand. I think that's true. You have to believe that music is, is an important part of our uh, human kind of toolkit. I mean, the anthropological evidence certainly points to that. It's, it's something that's found in every single human culture, like language. It goes way back in our uh, species past is like language. Uh, the oldest instruments that we know of are uh, Paleolithic flutes that date back to about 40,000 years ago. So it does seem to be something that has been part of human communities for a long time and universal. Now, you're absolutely right. Not every single human individual engages with music to the same degree, and some actively try to avoid it. In fact, there are there's actually a fair amount of work in my field now on people that are um, so-called musically tone deaf, which some used to think was a myth. Um, it's turning out to be real. Uh, it's different from what people conventionally mean by tone deafness. A lot of people self-label as tone deaf, by which they generally mean they don't sing well. They don't like their own singing voice. That's not what tone deafness is. True musical tone deafness is, is a problem with perceiving music. It's basic problems, like you can't tell when two melodies are the same or different. You can't recognize what should be highly familiar tunes from your culture unless they have words with them. You can't tell when music is out of tune, including your own singing. And so there's actually now a battery of tests that's used to diagnose true musical tone deafness, and uh, it's turning out it has genetic and neurological uh, underpinnings. Now, you're bringing us around to the interesting, well, not the interesting, but one of the key parts of, of your work. If music is central to who we are and what we do, and if uh, there are people who can't process music, mm -hmm. then you can make an analogy when people are having trouble with language mm -hmm. and they can no longer process language because of brain damage or some other issues, right. then studying the two things in conjunction could really uh, get you a lot further than you would have by studying one or the other. Yeah, I think that's a key insight. And, you know, as a biologist, one of the strategies we have for understanding living systems is to compare them to other things. And uh, so if we want to understand the digestive system, we look at not just humans, but other organisms to see what the range of possibilities is. And there's a lot, of, lot in common in, in the, the digestive physiology of a human and, and another primate, say. But language and music are kind of lonely phenomena and from a comparative perspective. We don't know of any other species that has anything quite like language or quite like human music. And so it, as a biologist, it makes it difficult to use that comparative strategy. But Realizing that they have enough in common that you can compare and contrast them to each other gives you a little bit of that comparative power back by looking just within the brains of, of humans and comparing these systems to get insight at the underlying mechanisms. Okay, so what 
by studying music and by studying language and by looking at the two things, how can you begin to make solutions, say, for people who have lost the ability to use language? One thing we can do is we can study what are typically considered language disorders to see if they really are purely language disorders or if they involve uh, problems with processing music as well. And we've done some of that work looking at a, a common disorder known as aphasia, which is acquired language deficit after brain damage. And there's a particular type of aphasia um, that involves problems with grammar and syntax and understanding the structure of sentences. And we've done some work with those patients to see if they also have some problems understanding the structure of musical sequences. And it looks like they do. And this is actually very interesting because it suggests that whatever's wrong at the mechanistic level is not some very specific language operation. It's something about processing structure in time in, in hierarchical sequences. And that perhaps we sh the way we should think about treating it is not just by doing language, but also maybe other types of mental um, exercises, including musical ones, perhaps, that help us regain some of those structural processing capabilities. In listening to some of your earlier lectures and in looking at your work, it seems like the, the digging into music in, in, and br breaking it down into its parts and then looking at what happens in the brain uh, is one of the things that fascinated me. In other words, if you're looking at rhythm, you're mm -hmm. looking at pitch, you're looking at all the different parts yes. of music and what music does and what music is, yes. then you can begin to look at the way the brain works on all of those things differently and similarly. Can you tell me a little bit about that part of your work? Well, yes. I, I think that's a key insight is that uh, music is not one thing. It's many processes that interact. There's the processing of rhythm, the processing of pitch, of timbre. Um, there's the emotional processing. All these have different uh, bases in the brain, and looking at how they interact is part of what's so interesting. So just to take one example, we're very interested in, in rhythm and the relationship between the auditory and the motor system in music. Now, one thing that you see all over the world is, uh, in every culture, is people moving to music and synchronizing to music, uh, to the beat of music. This is a universal and starts early in life and continues on through life and is the basis for dance and so forth. And it's kind of a remarkable response if you think about it. Um, here is this sound that is making you move your body rhythmically, not necessarily in an attempt to make sound yourself, but just in response to the music. We don't see that um, in any other species until recently, actually. We've done a little bit of work now on a, a cockatoo that seems to actually dance and synchronize to music. Um, but this is telling us there's something in our brain that connects the auditory system to the motor system in a very tight way. And understanding that is really worthwhile, not only for the basic neuroscience of understanding how different brain systems are coupled in perception and behavior, but for the practical reason that music therapists have observed that Parkinson's patients some, can sometimes, um, those who are kind of frozen motorically, can sometimes initiate movement and coordinate movement and keep things going, like walking, when they hear music with a beat versus when they don't. And it would be wonderful to understand how that works so you could sort of optimize the kind of therapy that would help them with their movement disorders. You know, the fascinating thing to me when I heard you speak about this before is that you might think, well, it's the music is sort of causing the movement in some way or other. And then when I guess you study the videotapes and listen to the music and so forth, if the movement is uh, anticipating the music a little bit, then it can't be that the music is somehow causing the movement. Oh, but I it's a lot more complicated than that. Right. When you move to a musical beat, you typically, um, let's say you're tapping with a metronome. You, you, we find that people um, are very good at that, and their taps actually anticipate the metronome clicks a little bit. So it's not that they're, it's not click, react, click, react, click, react. It's, it's very much you're, you're moving in 
in, in accordance with a mental model of time that you have that's been influenced by the metronome, but is in your head. And that's very interesting, yeah. Can you tell me about uh, some of the things perhaps that you won't talk to us about in, in your lecture today, but some of the areas that are a little further out, some of the things you say, if when I get the time, when I get oh. the money, when I get the bigger <laughs> lab and the 10 more assistants, uh -huh. this is what I really want to look at. Oh, interesting. We are doing kind of basic research on movement to music, some of the brain mechanisms that are involved in integrating auditory and motor systems. But uh, if I had the resources, I would actually love to work with patients and actually see firsthand about how music helps Parkinson's patients. I, you know, Oliver Sacks has written about this in his book, Musicophilia, and I've heard about it through colleagues, but I've never seen it firsthand. And, and I think seeing it firsthand and, and actually having a chance to work with um, neurosurgeons who treat Parkinson's disease with different kinds of brain stimulation and coordinate therapy with them based on rhythmic music and, and rhythmic brain stimulation um, would be really fascinating and interesting project that would combine basic neuroscience with applied benefits for people. That would be a wonderful kind of way to go in the future. Is Just as a final question, when you're listening to music, when you're just enjoying music, when you're playing music, or when you're sharing music with friends or family, does your research kind of pop into your head? Or are you kind of uh, looking over yourself and wondering what your brain is doing and the chemicals and everything else <laughs> is doing? Or can you let all of that yeah. go and just yeah. kind of enjoy music in the way you did maybe yeah. when you were a kid? I enjoy it very much at an intuitive level when I'm experiencing music in an artistic context as opposed to a scientific context. And I think the idea that studying something scientifically ruins one's appreciation for it, you know, Wordsworth's uh, We Murder to Dissect, is a little oversimplified. I mean, if you really talk to musicians, I mean, to scientists who study music, um, most of them are music lovers. They, they have an intuitive love of music. And if anything, their science enriches their experience of music. It doesn't diminish it. And it's like a botanist. You know, if you, if you know every name of every part of a plant, does that mean you can't see beauty in flowers anymore? No. I mean, it, these are sort of different levels of appreciation. There's a nice actual lecture on YouTube by Richard Feynman who answers exactly this question about physics, and, and he, his argument is actually knowing the physics only enhances his appreciation of aesthetically meaningful, beautiful phenomena. So none of this gets in, in your way when you listen to music and enjoy it? Not yet, and I really hope it doesn't, <laughs> <laughs> otherwise I will have ruined my whole reason for getting into this field. Well, thank you very much, Ani Patel of the Neurosciences Institute in San Diego, California. I'm Steve Mencher for the Library of Congress. Thank you, Steve. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.